listeners. This is Labor Know Your Rights Podcast. I'm your host, Dave. This episode is brought to you by the National League of Justice and Security Professionals, where the members come first. Contact information can be found in our show notes, including our toll-free number, where you can leave a message, ideas for future episodes, or tell us about events, campaigns, or victories in your union. Please check out Life on Record. With AFL-CIO support, the Asian Pacific American Labor Alliance became a leading national advocate for Asian American civil rights, especially active around legislative attacks on immigrants and affirmative action. After the Japanese-owned New Otani Hotel in Los Angeles fired union activists during an organizing drive, here H-E-R-E Local 11 called a boycott. Apala helped here, pursued Japanese professional and trade associations to honor the boycott. Organizing low-wage workers meant challenging the INS, though both the NLRB and the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission extended federal labor law to undocumented workers. Employers hardly feared the INS. Between 1995 and 1999, about 4,000 were fined for immigration violations, and nearly every fine was reduced or forgiven entirely. Deportations more than doubled from 1990 to 1997. When UFCW organizers visited Nebraska and Iowa meatpacking plants in 1998, they found Operations Vanguard inspecting 24,000 employee records from 40 plants the INS discovered almost 5,000 without documents on file. When the service notified the workers by mail, over 3,000 fled the area, including 20 out of 22 activists organizing at Greater Omaha Packing. That summer, the INS disrupted a UFW drive at Rose Grower Bear Creek Productions in California, San Joaquin Valley by deporting hundreds of workers Many had lived and worked in the area for more than 15 years. In 1999, the INS deported 500 members of SEIU San Francisco's local 1877 as the union began mobilizing for a contract. And in Minnesota, the Holiday Inn Express manager turned over nine employees to the INS during a HERG organizing drive. In February 2000, the AFL-CIO Executive Council declared that employer sanctions had failed, and for the first time in its history, the Federation called for amnesty for illegal immigrants. AFL-CIO support for organizing low-wage workers expressed the New Voice ambition to rebuild the labor movement as a social movement, but many union leaders worried that coalitions might escape their control. 
The AFL-CIO had declined to support groups such as Black Workers for Justice, Korean Immigrants Workers Association, Chinese Progressive Association, the Chinese Staff and Workers Association, Asian Immigrant Women Association, and the Filipino Workers Center because of their radical connections. The Federation gave Jobs with Justice $100,000 in 1996, but Secretary-Treasurer Trumpka wondered whether even that low level of support was worthwhile. A grassroots outcry changed his position. In 1997, the AFL-CIO Executive Board endorsed JWT's demand for real jobs instead of welfare work and its workers' rights board projects, and the Federation went on to encourage its affiliates to support street heat tactics. In fact, alliances became more important to many union efforts. One of the first New Voice initiatives was the Organizing Institute's Union Summer Program, which recruited hundreds of college students for short-term summer internships with unions. The program itself got mixed reviews, but when the students returned to campus, continued to work for labor causes. In 1999, a student faculty community coalition for justice persuaded Long Island's Southampton University to dump a custodial services contract and rehire its former janitors, mostly Native and African Americans. Students, student activists also demanded their schools require contractors to pay a living wage. The first to adopt the policy was John Hopkins University in Baltimore. What really took off was the sweatshop campaign developed originally from the National Labor Committee Central American Solidarity Work. The sweatshops campaign picked up speed in 1995 when 72 Thai women contract workers were discovered in a barbed wire California compound sewing name brand garments for 17 hours a day at, a, uh, at about a dollar an hour. It got another boost when NLC activists reduced television celebrity Kathy Lee Gifford to tears on her own program by showing how her Walmart clothing line was made by teenage Honduran girls working 15 hours a day. Union summer graduates started the United Students Against Sweatshops in July 1998 to make universities and colleges impose fair labor standards on contractors licensing school logos for athletic clothing. Academic support for labor, usually confined to a few college and university labor studies programs, got a boost in October 1996 when a 60s style teach-in at Columbia University drew over 2,000 participants. Religious leaders had always been key supporters in labor struggles, but the AFL-CIO's new emphasis on social justice encouraged more organized and inclusive approach. Union interests did not always fit easily into the wider world of social justice movements. In 1996, AFSCME prison guards helped break a prisoner strike for minimum wage against the Minnesota subsidiary of Unicor, the county's largest prison labor company. Despite strike support from the community labor, a job is right coalition, the next the Tennessee AFL-CIO supported prisons privatization in exchange for Corrections Corporation's neutrality in union drives. 
Los Angeles community and labor activists got together for a long-term effort to raise the local standard of living. They focused on the low-wage and growing tourist industry. In 1995, they set up the Tourism Industry Development Council, later the Los Angeles Alliance for a New Economy, an umbrella coalition of religious, labor, and community groups to develop proposals, educate and mobilize workers and residents, demand reinvestment and land use planning, and support union organizing. The laborers organized New York area asbestos workers, mostly Ecuadorian immigrants, in 1996, and by 2000 had organized about two-thirds of the small UXO industry. The machinists settled strikes at Boeing and McDonnell Douglas both after members rejected the settlements first negotiated. UAW Local 696 at Two General Motors Delphi Division Brake Plants, Dayton, Ohio, went on strike early in March 1996. Within days, most of the North American GM plants had suspended operations, lean production, and just-in-time inventory could be vulnerable at strategic points. Though the strike was technically local and over health and safety concerns, GM ended it by promising yet again to hire more production and skilled workers. In 1997, the Teamsters won a 15-day strike against United Parcel Services. The union paid special attention to public relations. UPS drivers visited their regular pickups to explain why they were on strike. The union demanded that the company convert part-time jobs to full-time, got widespread public support, and the new contract promised 10,000 new full-time jobs. The UAW struck Johnson Controls auto seat factories in Plymouth Township, Michigan, and Oberlin, Ohio for first contracts in January 1997. After three weeks and a Ford commitment not to buy non-union seats, Johnson's control settled. Over the summer of 1998, CWA and IBEW workers at Bell Atlantic won a dispute on forced overtime after a two-day strike. The union at U.S. West had to stay out its days to get the same relief. In 1999, still workers, Local 8888 improved hourly rates and pension for 9,200 workers at Virginia's Newport New Shipbuilding with a 15-week strike. By that time, a campaign by the Southern Nevada Building Trades Council and HERE had made Las Vegas one of the highly unionized cities in the country. The AFL-CIO promised to support other Union City drives and started one in New Orleans. Unionism passed a milestone when the biggest white-collar strike in U.S. history was settled early in 2000. 19,000 Boeing Corporation engineers and professional workers in the Society of Professional Engineers in Aerospace, which had recently affiliated with the AFL-CIO's International Federation of Professional and technical engineers struck to bring their raises in line with other Boeing unions. The 40-day strike was supported by the machinists local at Boeing and by CWA, AFSCME, IUE, and the AFL-CIO. 
Some organizing drives prospered. In October 1996, HERE Local 2 won a year-long campaign at the San Francisco Marriott Hotel in Minneapolis, Minnesota. HERE Local 12 won contracts and raises for more than 1,500 hotel workers, many of them new immigrants from countries as remote as Tibet and Somalia, with a 13-day strike in June 2000. According to HERE staffer Kate Shanassi, the Minneapolis strikers' unity and diversity was their greatest strength. In February 1999, SEIU took in 74,000 home health care workers in Los Angeles County, the biggest union victory since 1937. The election capped on a year drive that had required changes in state labor laws. The union had already absorbed the 40-year-old Committee of Interns and Residents, a doctor's union based in New York City public hospitals, in 1997. In June 1999, the American Medical Association approved unions for doctors and Boston's 15,000-member National Doctor Alliance affiliated with SEIU. That year also saw victories at two longtime Southern Targets, Unite and its ACT WU predecessors, had been trying to organize Cannon Mills plant in North Carolina since 1974. In the face of massive labor law violations and a company policy that replaced pro union workers with new hires from new ethnic groups, whites, then African Americans, then Latinos, finally Asians, the union had lost four elections. After the NLRB ordered the 1997 election re-ran, the company cut back anti-union activities, and on June 23, 1999, workers at Fieldcrest Cannon's two-mail complex in Kannapolis voted for the union, 2,270 to 2,102. It was the biggest private sector union victory in the right to work South for decades. The AFL-CIO seized a one-time opportunity when the government of Puerto Rico lifted its 1960 ban on collective bargaining by public employees. A five-union consortium, AFSCME, SEIU, UFCW, AFT, and UAW persuaded 150,000 public employees to endorse collective bargaining in May 1999 then organized representation elections. In November 1999, the Federación de Mastros became the AFT's largest affiliate. In difference to Puerto Rican labor concerns, the 1999 AFL-CIO convention passed an AFS-CME resolution demanding that the Navy give up its bombing range on the island of Viquis. However, Employer resistance did not stop. Some drives failed or stalled, and some strikes lost. Truck drivers working in the Los Angeles Kong Beach port was lease or owner-operators, independent contractors, excluded from the Wagner Act protection and paid by load. Most were Latin American immigrants. In 1995, a few activists approached CWA Local 9400 for help and began organizing again. Within months, their meetings regularly brought out hundreds of drivers. In May 1998, the drivers called a strike. 
both at the few companies that employ drivers and by signing up with a CWA endorsed labor leasing company and refusing to work from non-union companies. Despite community and church support, the strike relief from CWA, when the leasing company failed, the strike failed. In January 1997, CWA lost an election for clerical and service workers at U.S. Air. In February, the 19-month Detroit newspaper strike ended with when Gunnett and Knight Ritter management accepted the union's unconditional offer to return to work. Company stocks had soared during the strike and many strikers were still waiting to be called back two years later. A two-year struggle at Northwest Airlines exposed other limitations. Three unions represented Northwest workers, the Airline Pilots Association, Teamsters Local 2000 for flight attendants, and the machinists for mechanics and ground crews, baggage handlers and clerks. They had all accepted concessions in 1993 to save the airline from bankruptcy. In 1998, they wanted restoration. The unions agreed that if one walked, all did. The flight attendants organized contract action teams to build support for the negotiations and solidarity in case of a strike. The pilots went out for 15 days in August, winning phase out of their two-tier pay structure and wage and benefit improvements. But the machinists split in November, 11,000 mechanics unhappy with being mired in old factory unions dominated by a scold Lebris decertified the IAU in favor of the Independent Airline Mechanics Fraternal Association, leaving behind 17,000 clerks and baggage handlers. Teamsters negotiations went on another year under Hoppe's personal direction and with CAT dismantled by the union. In August 1999, Local 2000 rejected the first settlement negotiated, then ratified an improved offer in May 2000. The United Fire Workers three-year strawberry campaign recruited only a few hundred members. In May 1999, the union was defeated at Watsonville's Coastal Berry Company by an otherwise unknown Coastal Berry of California Farm Workers Committee. Teamster drives at Federal Express and overnight also stalled after the NLRB kept FedEx under the National Railway Act, which required that all FedEx employees vote at the same time, and after overnight kept running during a partial strike called in October 1999, after a four-year organizing drive. The focus on organizing was slow to pay off. Total union membership declined again in 1996 and 1992 when about 16.1 million workers belonged to unions, about 12.9 million to AFL-CIO affiliates. In the private sector, less than 108 of workers were in unions. The year 1998 saw a slight net gain nationwide of about 101,000 members, though union density continued to fall. 1999 was better, 265,000 new members overall, with growth in private sector union membership for the first time in years. In private industry, 
where 160,000 manufacturing jobs disappeared in 2000, union density fell to 9% overall. Though unions continued to represent a significant number of workers on transportation and utilities, 24%, construction coverage of 18%, and manufacturing just under 15%. The issue in Seattle was globalization, specifically the WTO's failure to incorporate labor and environmental standards in its trade guidelines. Several local unions had experience with one or another face of globalization. The ILWU had joined the worldwide solidarity strike in support of Liverpool, England dock workers. That shut down World Trade on January 20th, 1997, and a second solidarity strike that shut down West Coast on September 8th. In April 1999, Teamsters Local 174 and the Inland Boats Men's Union joined the with ILWU in a rush hour port workers power rally. And longshore workers shut down the port when Teamsters picketed non-union shippers and again when truck owner operators demonstrated for an IOU recognition. On the day of the WTO meeting, 20,000 unionists rallied at a stadium, then marched downtown. The widely reported slogan found on one protester's sign, Teamsters and Turtles Together at Last, expressed a major theme of the day. In January 2000, ILA stevedores were beaten and gassed by a Charleston, South Carolina police when the union tried to shut down a shipping contractor that had switched to non-union workers. Despite the Democrats' record on trade issues, the AFL-CIO endorsed Vice President Al Gore's candidacy for president. The 9-11 attack slammed an already faltering economy in New York City, which lost 100,000 jobs and registered a record number of homeless families. In 2002, a series of massive corporate failures precipitated a sharp decline in the stock market, devastating pension funds across the country. It turned out that much of the 1990s boom had been on fraudulent profit reports and stock manipulations. Media coverage highlighted blue-collar heroism the courage displayed by firefighters, police, and the 30,000 union members who cleared the World Trade Center site and recovered remains of the victims. Otherwise, labor got stiffed. The Bush administration refused to fund long-term monitoring of the health of workers on the Trade Center site and demanded that Homeland Security employees be exempted from union protections. When working people Solidarity has been limited in scope and vision. The privileged classes, economic, social, and political elites set the rules. When restricted by democratic controls, they have changed the rules to restore balance to their advantage. Working people and their movement have suffered this force defeat from the expansion of slavery to the impoverishment of the Gilded Age to the suppression of modern movements for social justice to the devastation of industrialization. The stakes are higher now. Wealth and privilege are more powerful than ever. Out of the 100 largest economies 
In the world, only 49 are sovereign nations. The rest are transnational corporations, and transnational corporations control more than a fourth of the world's economic activity. Please share this podcast with your family and friends. If you like our podcast, please rate us on iTunes. It helps others find us. If you would like to contact us, we have various ways to do so in our show notes, along with contact information for the National League of Justice and Security Professionals. Thank you for listening.